Hello again, my name is Andy. I teach creative writing and I write children's fiction under the pseudonym A.P. Winter. This time we're going to be looking at the question what does the practice of editing look like? And I'm going to be taking a bit of a look at my process of writing along the way. Just as a reminder, if you haven't done so already, please check out my book, Writing Children's Fiction Scene Play, through the link in the description. It has loads of advice and examples for anyone interested in writing long-form projects, and you can read the first three chapters for free on Amazon, so I definitely recommend taking a look. So, to the importance of editing. When I had my first job digging holes for the local council, I decided I was going to buy my granddad a birthday present. He wasn't an easy person to find gifts for, but I had a plan for something he might enjoy. I went to a pie shop and I asked them if they could make a big pie with the words Happy Birthday Grandad on top in pastry. I'm not making this up, by the way, this really is how I think. Anyway, the day came to collect the pie and the man in the shop said, I'm afraid we couldn't fit Happy Birthday Grandad on the top, so we cut it down a bit. Oh, that's okay, I said. He knows it's for him, so just happy birthday will do fine. The man looked suddenly concerned and went to fetch the pie. Sure enough, he returned with a big, thick pie that showed in proud, short-crust letters the single word, Grandad. I still bought it, but I wish I'd explained a little more clearly that I wanted it to look like a pie fit for a Grandad and not a Grandad that had proved fit to be made into a pie. Again and again you'll hear the advice, including from me, that a good start to editing is to force yourself to cut words. Stephen King tells a good anecdote in On Writing that explains how he came round to the idea that the second draft is the first draft minus 10%. I'll let you read it for yourself because I'd hate to deprive a struggling author like Stephen King of book sales. Anyway, it's good advice. But how do you get an idea of which 10% to lose? Learning to edit is a process in itself. It means working on your writing for long enough that you notice its weaknesses and that you make a note, mental or otherwise, of the things that are messing it up. I know that sounds negative, but really embracing that mindset that there are words in there that are holding your writing back the raw marble of your writing with the statue hidden away inside. That's where your writing gets exciting. It puts you in a position to really start making your work sing. You should make your own list of things that aren't working because everyone's writing is different, but I have some suggestions for places to start. So a few things that I've learned to cut include excessive detail, You can never make a reader picture exactly the scene you want, but you can make them bored of trying to picture it. Stated emotions or images whose meaning is explained to the reader before they've had chance to ask any questions about these things. Repeated words and phrases. Repeated images or images that all really stand for the same thing. And finally, writing flourishes that make things less clear and don't provide any extra feeling to the writing. Let's look at an example of how to get a sense of this in action. 
This is a very personal approach, and I'm going to use a very personal bit of description to evoke what I'm talking about. Just to be clear, though, there isn't one way of writing engaging prose or of writing description or anything like that. There's just ways you fall into that seem to work. So that's what I'm trying to do here, show you the choices that I make and show you how I arrived at those choices. You may make different choices. In fact, you probably should, but the point is to put thought into it. Anyway, here's a piece of description of a place from my childhood. At my grandparents' house, there was a run-down shed with a green door. We only ever caught glimpses inside. Cobwebs, an old Triumph motorbike, boxes of expired food. And in the corner, the long, low outline of an ancient freezer, which my grandma never approached without thick rubber gloves and boots, because sometimes... Just sometimes, she emphasised, it electrocuted her. Now here's the same details, without much thought put into how they're presented. My grandparents' shed was always gloomy, and we weren't allowed to go inside. They kept all kinds of strange things there amongst the dim light. There was a motorbike and an assortment of oily mechanical things and piles of boxes too. You could see a multitude of cobwebs covering the walls and carpeting the floor and ceiling too, like everything inside had been gathered up by some giant hoarding spider. There was even a freezer that wasn't safe to use anymore, but which they kept running anyway, putting rubber gloves on, their hands to open, in case it electrocuted them. You can hear me stumbling a little bit over that just because some of those sentences aren't particularly easy to read, so that's maybe one of the first things that you can look for. But a few quick points. Redundant words and close, jarring repetitions. So we had boxes two and then floor and ceiling two. We don't need two in any of those cases. The phrase, you could see. You don't need to say that characters see things or the reader can see things or that you can see things unless you're trying to create some specific effect. Normally you can just relate the image and the seeing or hearing or touching is implied. The exception might be if you're pacing things to seed intrigue. You might reference a character seeing something and keeping the something withheld for a moment to get the reader asking questions, so seeing something moving, hearing something they couldn't explain. Because, and this is something I talk about a lot on this podcast, that's a way of leaving space for the reader to get involved. But just saying you see something and then immediately describing what that thing is seems like a bit of a waste of words. It gets between the reader and the image, tells them how to approach the image perhaps, and that's where things begin to get a little bit cluttered. The detail, multitude of cobwebs. Quantifying things is often unnecessary for the image to be conjured, at least in my opinion, and again I think it can muddy a sense of what the image is too. I think this is especially pertinent with hyperbole, so saying there's loads or millions or stretching as far as the eye can see. I always feel that deliberately exaggerating the sense of something has the opposite effect in my writing, making the reader flinch away from picturing the exaggerated image and bounce back to not really picturing it clearly at all. Of course, a lot of this doesn't apply if it's a voice effect where a narrator or character speaks in a deliberately exaggerated way. But with that point, we're getting into description that implies the attitude of a character or a narrator and gets the reader involved in asking questions in that way. That's a whole 
other kettle of fish, and I think that's suitable for a podcast of its own. For now, I'm just talking about this more transparent description. Anyway, back to the example. That giant hoarding spider detail, it's one of those flourishes that can seem seductive for writers because it seems pretty clever when you first jot it down. Everything is covered in cobwebs. Spiders make cobwebs. Maybe this is like a big nest of some spider that collects motorbikes and things. But when you break down what you're showing the reader, it really just follows on, obviously, from there being lots of cobwebs. It doesn't present the image any more clearly or evocatively. It doesn't induce any other kind of interesting meaning around the image, unless you're afraid of giant spiders, in which case that really isn't the point. And it's taking up a lot of space in the paragraph as well. Maybe we could make it emotionally resonant by adapting it slightly. We'll come back to this idea in a moment. But right now, I feel it's just one of those lines that says, I'm writing a novel, by the way. Redundant phrasing is good to look out for too. I realize I'm laboring the point a bit in the example, but you may have noticed the phrase, putting rubber gloves on their hands to open in case it electrocuted them. Well, where else are they going to put rubber gloves except their hands? Do we even need to say putting on? In the first example, the edited example, we just get never approached without rubber gloves and boots. I think that's much more elegant. It skims off all those unnecessary details. And now for the most important bit. What I've really tried to demonstrate here is the power of not telling the reader how to feel about something before they realize the meaning themselves. By saying the the freezer isn't safe to use anymore up front, the fact that it requires safety procedures to open is redundant, and I would argue that it's not particularly funny either. There's no apprehension before the payoff. Let's compare the two. So in the first, and in the corner, the long, low outline of an ancient freezer, which my grandma never approached without thick rubber gloves and boots, because sometimes, just sometimes, she emphasized, it electrocuted her. And the unedited version, there was even a freezer that wasn't safe to use anymore, but which they kept running anyway, putting rubber gloves on their hands to open in case it electrocuted them. One of those, I'd argue, sounds like a novel. The other one sounds like an inspection report. Similarly, there are details that state how we should feel about images before the images themselves are introduced. In that opening... My grandparents' shed was always gloomy, and we weren't allowed to go inside. They kept all kinds of strange things there amongst the dim light. I mean, it's telling us that there's going to be strange things before we'd had the images of the strange things. We said it's gloomy and that we don't want to go inside up front. We've undermined a lot of opportunity for the reader to construct these meanings. And we've made uh, following details, such as the dim light, more redundant too. It's dim and it's gloomy, and we don't want to go inside. And by the way, here are some images that actually imply all those things. It's not elegant, in my opinion, to order it that way. Okay, so I hope all of this gives an idea of what I'm talking about. The details themselves aren't that groundbreaking, but just thinking about the ordering of those details alters how interesting it feels to read. Letting the reader wonder a little bit before you reveal things can be important, whether it's the narrator's attitude or where the description itself is leading. I know all of this can potentially seem really daunting. What if you just want to get words down, and what if you're not used to editing in this amount of detail? Well, it does take effort, 
But there are two important points of reassurance. Firstly, honing the feeling of lines is what editing is for. So don't be afraid to just get things down in that first draft and then improve things later. And secondly, this is all stuff that you can search out with your feelings. You've read books. You know when something strikes you as powerful. You can do the same with your own work. It just takes a little practice. As an aside about poetical writing, and returning to that flourish about the cobwebs, in my opinion, poetical writing means an emotional resonance, which means connecting meanings to form an emotion, which means paying very close attention to the purpose of your images. It doesn't just mean using pretty words, sound play, and figurative language without it leading to a resonance. You can use all of those devices, but to my mind, it's the sense of purpose and what it leaves you feeling that's important. Too often I see writers tie themselves in knots over the prettiness of lines that just fall flat once they're put together. Try to let the images speak to each other. Let the meaning create emotions. Don't stress and stress and stress how pretty an image is to try and force feelings to appear. For example, if we're taking our shed imagery and trying to make the reader feel some things about the objects inside, we could say something like boxes of old newspapers with the faces faded, trophies that were once clutched with pride, little shoes that hadn't fit their owner for 30 years. There's a feeling of time passing and moving on without us there, the idea that time changes the importance and preciousness of things. It's accessible, but not fully wrapped up or stated, and it's also a big universal idea that we can all relate to. All of this, without any need for explanation or fancy words, is just images speaking together to give you something to hang your emotions on. As a final tip, short story contests are a great way of forcing yourself to lose the parts you think you need and discover your style in the process. Or if you want to skip the contest part, just take a 3,000 word section of your writing, copy and paste it into a new document, and don't stop working on it until you've got it down to 2,000 words. I promise you'll learn a lot about the way you write and the way you want to write in the process. Okay, I'm going to close things there, but thank you, as always, to everyone that has shared the podcast and left kind ratings and reviews. You can support the podcast with the price of a coffee through the Buy Me a Coffee link in the description. Or if you want to get something for yourself, you can check out the book Writing Children's Fiction Scene Play. Again, that's also in a link in the description. It's available everywhere through Amazon. And if you have found the book useful, also please give it a good rating so that it's more visible to other writers. Okay, I'll aim to have something else to share soon, and I hope you'll join me then.